This is Barry Zelma, Zelma on insurance. Today I'd like to speak about the role of victims in a criminal investigation, especially with concern to insurance companies who are the sole victims of insurance fraud. Insurance fraud is a major component of white-collar crime. It is slowly becoming a more significant component of the law enforcement agenda. The insurance industry plays a leading role in assisting prosecutors in the investigation and prosecution of insurance fraud, mainly because state legislatures have mandated that insurance companies maintain special investigative units to help defeat insurance fraud. The state statutory compulsion have caused insurers to help prosecutors establish criminal cases involving health care providers, lawyers, bogus claimants, arsonists, and a vast array of participants in an infinite number of schemes to defraud insurance companies and their customers. Throughout the country, insurers routinely cooperate with law enforcement officials that are investigating insurance fraud by providing information, specialized expertise, and technical and administrative support for these complicated investigations. The recent federal health insurance fraud statute and state statutes in various states require cooperation between private insurers and law enforcement officials on fraud investigations. Prosecutors have broad discretion to enlist the help and experience of insurers as they feel appropriate. Criminal defense lawyers are upset by the aid presented to prosecutors and have sought to disqualify prosecutors who take such aid. If a burglary victim provides a list of stolen property to a police officer, no collusion is claimed. If a bank uses its resources to pull from its records checks issued by a forger, no collusion is claimed. If the attempt to compel prosecutors to distance themselves from victims, typically the most effective source of information about a crime, is successful, it will make criminal prosecution nearly impossible. Prosecuting a robbery or a rape without the assistance of the victim to identify the criminal is fairly difficult, if not impossible. Restraining a prosecutor from taking the cooperation and assistance of the victim of a crime should not be supported by constitutional or public policy considerations. Victim cooperation and assistance makes it easier for a prosecutor to exercise his or her responsibilities. In 1996, in a case called People v. Eubanks, the California Supreme Court 
found that Penal Code Section 1424, Subdivision A1, provides the standard for prosecutor recusals. The motion may not be granted unless the evidence shows that a conflict of interest exists that would render it unlikely that the defendant would receive a fair trial. In Eubanks, a company that was concerned about trade secret theft by one of its executives and a rival company sought assistance from the police and the district attorney. The investigation required computer experts. When the district attorney indicated he did not have the budget to hire an expert, the victim company indicated it would provide funding to do so. The district attorney hired two experts and the victim paid for them. The defense sought recusal on the ground and the trial court granted it, finding a conflict existed which gave rise to a reasonable possibility the district attorney might not prosecute the case even-handedly. The Court of Appeal reversed on the ground that no conflict existed, and even if one did, it was as a matter of law not prejudicial. The Supreme Court reversed and remanded. It found a conflict existed, and the trial court could have found prejudice had it used the correct standard of prejudice. The Supreme Court announced the standard of review is whether substantial evidence supports the trial court's findings and whether the trial court abused its discretion in deciding the motion. In People v. Parmar, a 2001 decision of the California Court of Appeal, the court concluded, quote, defendants do not have a right to expect crimes to go unpunished for lack of public funds. Thus, disqualification is not required merely because financial assistance has made prosecution economically feasible. The Eubanks decision is exceedingly narrow in its holding. It places significant restrictions on the ability of victims to cooperate and assist in the investigation and prosecution of crime. It seems contrary to history, law, and policy, and should be rejected by other courts around the country. The limitation of Eubanks is that the court has discretion to recuse the prosecutor if it first incurs a debt and then requires the victim to pay that debt. The controlling authority is Penal Code Section 1424, which establishes procedures for a motion to disqualify the district attorney and which provides in pertinent part, quote, the motion shall not be granted unless it is shown by the evidence that a conflict of interest exists such as would render it unlikely that the defendant would receive a fair trial. This therefore establishes a two-part test. One, whether there is a conflict of interest, and two, if so, whether the conflict is so severe as to disqualify the district attorney. A conflict exists 
whenever there is a reasonable possibility that the district attorney's office may not exercise its discretionary function in an even-handed manner. The conflict is disabling only if it is so grave as to render it unlikely that the defendant will receive fair treatment. The trend toward private financing of criminal prosecutions raise a concern that it creates a preference to seek criminal justice only for the wealthy. With the courts and criminal defense attorneys are concerned that individuals of limited means, small companies, and nonprofit organizations may forego asking the prosecution of their claims or simply may be turned down by the local prosecutor because the prosecutor cannot afford the costs. In Eubanks, the California Supreme Court recognized the risk that financial assistance from purported victim raised an obvious question as to whether the wealth of the victim has an impermissible influence on the administration of justice and whether such a system would deserve or receive the confidence of the public. At the same time, the court noted that large corporations often have difficulty interesting local prosecutors whose resources are already being strained by the fight against violent crime in the investigation and prosecution of business fraud and other complicated crimes against corporate victims. The California Supreme Court recognized the difficulty that insurers have in obtaining a prosecution of a fraud where the insurer is a victim. For example, in one case I handled, I provided, through the California Department of Insurance Fraud Division, prosecutors with the sworn testimony of an insured and the sworn testimony of four corroborating witnesses to his attempt at insurance fraud. The Los Angeles District Attorney's Office, after being compelled by state statute to provide a reason why, refused to prosecute on the grounds there was insufficient evidence of fraud. I don't know why, but the decision was made. In Massachusetts, a statutory scheme concerning insurance fraud similar to the Model Acts uh, and the California Insurance Fraud Prevention Act was challenged. The Insurance Fraud Bureau, a statutorily authorized investigative agency, financed by insurers' special tax payments, investigates reports of insurance fraud and, if satisfied that fraud has occurred, refers the matter to the public prosecutor. The challenge failed because the plan did not prejudice the rights of the defendant. In reaching its conclusion, the court observed that it would not serve the public interest to have a rule that inhibited close cooperation between prosecutors and victims. The important point was that in the process, 
the prosecutor must retain total control over the course of the investigation and all discretionary decisions. California applies the same reasoning as do most states. In the criminal justice system in the United States, the prosecutor bears responsibility for determining what crimes will be prosecuted. The legal system has traditionally allowed wide discretion to criminal prosecutors in the enforcement process. The government retains broad discretion as to whom to prosecute, so long as the prosecutor has probable cause to believe that the accused committed an offense defined by statute, the decision whether or not to prosecute and what charge to file or bring before a grand jury generally rests entirely in the prosecutor's discretion. The basis for this discretion rests on the nature of the prosecutorial function. Broad discretion rests largely on the recognition that the decision to prosecute is particularly ill-suited to judicial review. Prosecutors consider factors like the strength of the case, the prosecution's general deterrence value, the government's enforcement priorities, and the case's relationship to the government's overall enforcement plan. Courts analyze cases with different purposes. They are concerned with evidence presented in the application of precedent, examining the basis of prosecution delays, the criminal proceedings, threatens to law enforcement by subjecting the prosecutor's motives to outside inquiry and will destroy prosecutorial effectiveness by revealing the government's enforcement policy. Prosecutorial discretion is not unlimited. Selectivity in the enforcement of criminal laws is subject to constitutional constraints. The decision to prosecute may not be based on an unjustifiable standard like religion, race, or sexual orientation. Beyond these constitutional limitations, a trial judge must accord a presumption of constitutionality to prosecutorial decisions and approach the inquiry with appropriate respect for the judgments exercised by officers of a coordinate branch of government. Within these, within these boundaries, the U.S. Supreme Court's various pronouncements on the issue of discretion uniformly recognized that courts normally must defer to the prosecutorial decisions as to whom to prosecute. The reasons for judicial deference are well known. Prosecutorial charging decisions are rarely simple. In addition to assessing the strength and importance of a case, prosecutors also must consider other tangible and intangible factors such as government enforcement priorities. They must decide how best to allocate the scarce resources of a criminal justice system that simply cannot accommodate the litigation of every serious criminal charge. 
Because these decisions are not readily susceptible to the kind of analysis the courts are competent to undertake, the Supreme Court has been properly hesitant to examine the decision whether to prosecute. Prosecutors exercise their substantial discretion. Courts are loath to interfere with the prosecutor's judgments. The criminal defendant tries to challenge a prosecutor's participation in an insurance fraud prosecution by claiming that the insurance company has too much effect on the prosecutor, but the standard for prosecutorial disqualification is understandably very high. Efforts to disqualify prosecutors should not be allowed to interfere with the broad discretion afforded to prosecutors in the criminal process. Unfortunately for those involved in insurance and the attempt to defeat insurance fraud, prosecutors with a great amount of propriety will seldom take on an insurance fraud prosecution, even when provided funds from state statutes compelling insurers to pay special taxes to fund fraud prosecutions, the prosecutors would rather prosecute a drunk driving case or an assault and battery or a murder case than any insurance fraud case. And that is why there are reported in my Zelma's insurance fraud letter very few prosecutions of insurance fraud. This video was adapted from my book, Zelma on Insurance Claims, Part 110, Second Edition, the last in the 10-volume treatise, Zelma on Insurance Claims, all of which are available as both Kindle books and as paperbacks from Amazon.com. If you found this video to be interesting or useful to you and your colleagues, please pass it on. It's free. And please also subscribe to my Rumble channel, my YouTube channel, my Substack, and my blog so that you can learn of future videos and future blog postings. Thank you for your attention.